The description of God speaking to young Samuel in 1 Samuel 3, 1 to 21 begins with an interesting contextual detail. And before we get to that, if you think, wow, why did we skip ahead the last time? Didn't you preach from a ways back? I've been preaching with all this. I've preached every week that I was off. So you have to go to my podcast to hear the intervening sermons. But here we are in chapter 3. This is where I am anyway. And it begins, this text begins, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. And this observation raises two important questions. First, what does the author mean to tell us, and why preserve that detail? Let's consider first what the author meant to say with those words. To begin, word from the Lord being rare does not mean that the people had no access to things God had said, or to things that God had done. To this point in Israelite history, the people had access to the book of the law that had been written by Moses. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 21, the people had been commanded to put what is called in the Torah, the testimony, into the Ark of the Covenant. It was probably those two stone tablets. And we don't know who carved them. It's, it's, we know that God carved the first two. And then Moses smashed them. Some of you remember the story. But it's a little vague as to whether when he went back up the mountain, God carved them or he carved them. It's tough to say. But whatever it was, that was in the Ark of the Covenant. And then at the end of Moses' life, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 24 through 26, we've been told the following. It came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete, that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, so that it may remain there as a witness against you. So it is true that in Eli's day, most of what we now have as our Bible was not written. Most of the First Testament was not written. But they would have had access at least to the records of the covenant God had made with them at Mount Sinai. In our Bibles today, those would be the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, scholars debate all the time because you have to make a living. But we don't know what the book of the law would have looked like in Eli's day exactly. But suffice it to say that Samuel's not saying that they had no access to the word of God at all. That's not what he's talking about. When the text says that word from the Lord was rare in those days, we're being told that personal interactions with God were rare. And that's quite a revelatory observation. First, it implies that there were seasons in which the word of the Lord was not rare, or at least was more common than it was in the days of Eli. And this gives us a sense, we always are asking this question in this series, right? What does this tell us about God? Well, this gives us a sense of the personhood of God. If God were simply a force or a power, his presence would be consistent. Have you ever heard a historian say gravity was rare in those days? You ever heard anybody say that? No. Gravity is much more common today than it was in the 1700s. You'd never hear that because as a force, gravity is constant. Irregularity of the sort that 1 Samuel is intonating is reserved for people. To say that word from the Lord was rare is again to highlight the reality that God is not an idea, God is not a concept, He's not a force of nature or any such thing. God chooses when to interact with us and when not to. The God of Israel was and is a person. Sometimes God chooses to speak, sometimes God chooses not to speak. 
In the days of Eli, God had not chosen to speak to them very often. This irregularity also prepares us for Eli's confusion and Samuel's confusion. When God actually does talk, they were not listening for it because word from the Lord was rare in those days. Another question that arises from this first verse is this. If God does choose to interact personally with someone by speaking, how might that happen? Well, it would appear that the expectation of the writer of 1 Samuel was that it would most likely happen through visions, right? Word of the Lord is rare. Not many people were having visions. So that intonates that he thought visions were the way that it would most likely happen. The Hebrew word translated vision in verse 1, and I've not given you a slide for this. It won't be on the quiz at the end of our time together. But the word is chazon. Chazon. And chazon often referred to a vision that you saw in an altered state, either in a trance or maybe in a dream, something like that. In telling us that these were rare in Eli's day, the author of 1 Samuel is also telling us that that would be the normal way that God would communicate with his people, at least up until that point in history. Isaiah used that same word to describe his encounters with God in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. And the words used sometimes for visions from God in Ezekiel and in Daniel as well. However, and this is important, in Jeremiah, that same word is most often used to describe false visions that are seen by false prophets. And what that tells us is that these types of visions were often easy to misinterpret and often were misinterpreted by the people of Israel. So in any case, this prepares us for the unexpectedness of how God communicates with Samuel. God's communication with Samuel is quite plain. He doesn't have a vision. He gets direct communication, and that is rare in the history of Israel. It's more like that of Moses than of anybody else. Some of you may remember this story, but the people didn't always think Moses was honest when he said God was speaking to him. And so the people often grumbled and thought that Moses was lying to them or maybe he was over-interpreting his experience. And there's a scene in which his brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, begin to grumble against Moses. And they more or less say, even if God is talking to this guy, he is not understanding what God is saying. And so there's a big dispute and God responds to the dispute personally. And this is what he says. This is Numbers chapter 12 verses 6 through 8. He, God, said, Now hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision. I'll speak with him in a dream. That's what 1 Samuel was telling us. That's the most common way, right? It is not this way for my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, that is, openly, and not using mysterious language, and he beholds the form of the Lord. So why were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? Now the confusion of Aaron and Miriam in that text is understandable. In every case of God speaking in their experience, the message had come in visions or dreams, either of which could be difficult to interpret. You might remember that Aaron claimed inspiration when he made the golden calf. Do you remember that story? When God came down, Moses came down upset with him and said, why did you make an idol? I just, I just told you. I, just before I went up there, I said, don't make idols. And now I come down and there's an idol. And Aaron said, I put the gold in the fire and that's what came out. Like he's saying, I was inspired. I thought God wanted this idol. Right? 
That's Aaron's experience. It's hard to understand what God wants. So it's, it's easy to believe that Aaron did not quite understand what was happening with Moses. What they did not realize is that God was not communicating to Moses in the way he communicated with others. God was speaking to Moses plainly. And that is also what distinguishes Samuel. God spoke to Samuel plainly. The text continues in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 2. It says, But it happened at that time as Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyesight had begun to be poor. He could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So in these verses, Samuel and Eli are being contrasted. Eli is losing his vision. Just as Samuel is about to see something he had never seen before. Eli is living in rebellion, so he's living in the dark. Samuel is growing in favor with God and with people, so he is coming into the light. Samuel is also depicted as sleeping close to the Ark of the Covenant. You see that? That's where the written word of God was kept in those days. Wherever Eli was sleeping, and we're not told, it's clear that Samuel was sleeping closer to the word of God, and that's true not only in where they slept at night, but in where they were living their lives, right? We're also told that God spoke to Samuel in the early morning hours. Now we know that because the candle had not yet gone out. As Ralph Klein observes in his commentary in 1 Samuel, according to Exodus chapter 27, verse 21, the priests were to light a lamp from evening until morning. The text tells us that when God spoke to Samuel, the lamp had not gone out, so it was still at night. And this again emphasizes the fact that God called out to Samuel while it was still dark. It's hard not to see in this a reminder that Israel itself at this time was living in the dark. A dark time in which God was not speaking frequently and a dark time of rebellion against God, if you remember what comes before in this story. The text continues in verse 4 as follows. That the Lord called Samuel and he said, Here I am. We learned that word. That is on the quiz. Do you remember the phrase? Hineni. Hineni is, is, uh, is uh, what Samuel said. But he thought he was responding to Eli. And he said, here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time. And he got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go lay down, and it shall be if he calls you that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. This part of the story is heartbreaking for me because it reveals an uncomfortable truth about Eli. We recall earlier in 1 Samuel that Eli had blessed Hannah and that God had chosen to bless her as well. So despite his rebellion, Eli was able occasionally to walk in step with God. And now we see that Eli, though he did not know God, the text already told us that, and though he was about to be judged harshly by God, he did know how to humble oneself before God. Apart from the man of God who brought the word of prophecy to Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 2, there's no evidence in the text that God had ever spoken to Eli directly. It seems as though Samuel was having an experience that Eli had never in all his years had. 
In fact, we might assume that the revelation, that word from God was rare in those days, is meant to tell us as much about Eli's experience. And yet, once Eli realized that God was speaking to Samuel, he knew how to instruct Samuel to respond. I've come to appreciate Eli in this encounter. I don't know about you, but if I had received a prophetic word from somebody that God was going to judge my family, and if it then became clear to me that God was speaking to one of my children in a room down the hall, I think I would have been tempted to go back to their room with them and try to speak to God myself. Would you have done that? I would have done that. I find it humble of Eli, not only to recognize that God had chosen to speak to Samuel and not to him, but also to have properly instructed the boy as to how to respond. Why is this heartbreaking for me? Because it's becoming clearer and clearer that Eli did in fact know a lot about God. And even that Eli was a meek, he's apparently a meek and humble man, and yet he did not know God, nor was God pleased with his service as high priest. I don't know, maybe I, I just expect evil people to cackle madly and twist their mustaches. You know, <laughs> I was raised with Scooby-Doo. You know, I think the bad guys all sound like that, right? There's something tragic about Eli. He's both a good person and a wicked person at the same time. But his wickedness is more passive than it is active. He doesn't appear to have been wicked in what he overtly did. The text never says he was doing the things his sons were doing. But rather, he was wicked in what he allowed to be done and what he approved of others for doing. He's deeply kind to Samuel and humble before God, and yet he did nothing to restrain the horrible wickedness of his children. And not only of his children, but of the other priests who worked under his care. His story reminds me of two New Testament passages. The first comes from Romans chapter 1, verse 32, which is the conclusion of Paul's listing of all these behaviors that indicate that a culture is in rebellion against God. And Paul concludes his condemnation of all these nations with the following. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. That made me think about Eli. And then the second passage comes from the book of James and reminds us that wickedness comes not only from what we do, but also from what we do not do. James summarizes this truth in James 4.17 when he says, So for one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. Both of those passages speak to Eli. His wickedness was not active. It was passive. He knew what God expected of priests, but he allowed his sons to do otherwise. God condemned Eli not for what he was doing, but for what he was ignoring. Eli was the high priest. It was his responsibility to oversee the priesthood. In failing to do that, despite his own personal meekness and kindness, Eli had rebelled against God. It's a tough lesson for me. In verse 10, Samuel heeded Eli's instructions, and when the Lord spoke to him again, he spoke precisely as Eli had advised him. Samuel responded, Speak, for your servant is listening. And then the Lord revealed to Samuel what God had revealed for the most part to Eli already, through the man of God who came to him in 1 Samuel chapter 2. God said, Behold, I'm going to do a thing in Israel, and both ears of everyone who hears about it will ring. 
I love that for not one ear, both ears. On that day, I'll carry out against Eli everything that I've spoken in regard to his house from beginning to end. For I've told him that I'm going to judge his house forever for the wrongdoing that he knew. For the wrongdoing that he knew. Not for the wrongdoing that he did. For the wrongdoing that he knew. Because his sons were bringing a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Therefore, I've sworn to the house of Eli that the wrongdoing of Eli's house shall never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. So to return to what we were saying before, the plainness of God's speech to Samuel is striking. This is no vision. The word here is not chazon when it says he was afraid to share the vision with Eli. It's a different word. This was plain and clear communication. Nothing was left up to interpretation. Samuel didn't walk away going, I wonder what that meant. And the text indicates that Samuel was frightened by what he heard. Verse 15 tells us that Samuel was afraid to tell Eli what God had said. And who can blame him, right? Word from God was rare in those days. We might have thought that God speaking to someone would be an occasion for celebration. I mean, isn't it an honor to be a prophet? Don't people celebrate those who can speak directly with God? Looking online, it seems like those people often get rich. We're told that in the Greco-Roman world, for instance... People would travel from great distances to speak to the oracle of Delphi, who was said that it was said the god Apollo would speak directly through her. Samuel must have been so excited to have been chosen to be the one to receive the word of the Lord, right? No. The word that God spoke to Samuel was hard to hear and even harder to speak. But before we get to Eli's response, Let's pause to consider that last sentence of God's word to Samuel about Eli. God said in verse 14, Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the wrongdoing of Eli's house shall never be atoned for by sacrifice or by offering. Now I found over the last 25 years or so that Christians are often surprised by that sentence. Does this mean, for instance, that Eli's house is now condemned eternally? That not even the sacrifice of Jesus can atone for the sin of Eli's family? I thought children were never to die for the sins of their parents, nor parents for the sins of their children. Didn't God later say through Ezekiel that only the one who sins will be the one who dies? How can God condemn an entire family line like this? Well, this statement of God, did you know, is a quotation from the law. It's a recitation of the covenant of Sinai. We find it in Numbers chapter 15, verses 22 to 31. It's a lengthy passage of sorts, but it reveals, I I hope you'll pay attention to it, because it reveals something that I was never taught in the Church of Jesus Christ. I didn't learn it until I went to college, and I learned it from a Jewish person. It's astounding to me, because it's so obvious when you see it, but nobody ever told me this in Sunday school. This is Numbers chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. But when you, what do you see there? unintentionally, pay attention to that word, did you know that all the sacrifices in the Bible are only for unintentional sin? Did you know that? Did anybody tell you that? Nobody told me that, but it is what the Bible says. But when you unintentionally do wrong and fail to comply with all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, that is, all the Lord has commanded you through Moses from the day that the Lord gave commandments and onward through your gen- throughout your generations, then it shall be done. If it is done... 
unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, that all the congregation shall offer one bull as a burnt offering, as a soothing aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering and its drink offering, according to the ordinance, and one male goat as a sin offering. Then the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and they will be forgiven. Why? For it was an unintentional wrong and they have brought their offering an offering by fire to the Lord and their sin offering before the Lord for their unintentional wrong so all the congregation of the sons of Israel will be forgiven as well as the stranger who resides among them for the for guilt was attributed to all the people through an unintentional wrong verse 27 also if one person sins that's if the sin is in the community itself now if one person sins unintentionally then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat as a sin offering and the priest shall make atonement before the lord for the person who goes astray by an unintentional sin making atonement for him so that he may be forgiven you shall have one law for the native among the sons of israel and for the stranger who resides among them for one who does anything wrong unintentionally but the person who does wrong defiantly whether he is native or a stranger that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Since he has despised the word of the Lord, has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. Did you know that was in the Bible? If you go back to Leviticus, the first four chapters, and read through the sacrificial system of Israel, you'll find that it explicitly says that every sacrifice for sin is for unintentional offenses. It's quite common to hear Christians profess that in God's eyes, all sin is the same. You might have even said that. All sin is the same. And that might be true from a philosophical perspective, but it is not true from a biblical one. In the Bible, all sin is not the same. In the covenant of Sinai, sin came in two varieties. The two forms have been translated in these verses as unintentional and as defiant. In the Hebrew, the word translated unintentional comes from the Hebrew verb shagah. It's usually shigagah is usually what you find. The sense of this word has to do with making an error or a miscalculation. To shagah is to sin without malice, without rebelliousness. John Wesley said without intention, but I don't know if intention's right. It's without rebelliousness. Now, the word translated defiant, on the other hand, is a, is a phrase. It's biyad ramah with the raised hand is what it says he who sins with the raised hand which means defiantly rebelliously right thrusting one's fist at the heavens so in the scriptures not all sin is the same some sins are without malice they're without rebelliousness they come from errors or maybe having followed false instruction like eli's sons were doing what they should have known not to do because they were priests. But the people are just doing what the priest told them. So the people's sins are Shagah. But the priest's sins are Bayad Ramah, right? These sins, sins without malice or rebelliousness, were to be forgiven by sacrifice. However, some sins are defiant. They're rebellious. In committing these sins, the person is thrusting their fist at God. And there was no sacrifice in the law of Moses for those sins. There was no sacrifice in the law of Moses for those sins. Some required death. That's why there was a death penalty. Others required exile from the people of Israel. They were to be sent away. 
Now, some may be thinking, and I certainly thought this when I first read this in my first Old Testament class, and it was just stated like everybody knew it, and it destroyed my life when I heard it. And I don't know if the teacher saw that my life had just crumbled to bits as he was lecturing. But some might be thinking, as I tried to, phew, I'm glad we live under the new covenant of Jesus in which all sin is the same. But be careful. This distinction between non-defiant and defiant sins is still discussed in the New Testament. This passage is quoted in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31, we find these words. And now that you've read the Numbers passage, you will have ears to hear what the writer of Hebrews was saying. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's very much what Numbers 15 said, isn't it? But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has ignored the law of Moses is put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. Is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That sounds Old Testament, doesn't it? But it's in the New. The writer of Hebrews has taught us that the distinction God drew between rebellious and non-rebellious sins in the covenant of Sinai is still in play in the new covenant of Jesus. Non-rebellious sins, since they were covered by sacrifice in the covenant of Sinai, are covered by the sacrifice of Jesus. He fulfills the Old Testament sacrifices. Therefore, non-rebellious sins are covered before they're committed, it would seem. However, rebellious sins were not covered by sacrifice in the covenant of Sinai, nor are they automatically forgiven by the sacrifice of Jesus. So when David committed sin with Bathsheba, that was rebellious, right? His only recourse was to have God forgive him. There was no sacrifice that could atone for what he did. He needed to come directly to God, and it's the same in the New Testament. Rebellious sins could only be forgiven by God in the covenant of Sinai. And those same sins require repentance to be forgiven by Jesus. Non-rebellious sins are forgiven once for all by the sacrifice of Jesus. Rebellious sins are at the discretion of Jesus to forgive. And the New Testament teaches that Jesus will forgive those only on condition of repentance. To return to Eli, what God revealed to Samuel is that God considered the sins of Eli's family rebellious. He considered them to be high-handed. And because of that, there was no sacrifice in the law that could be made for them. So in being faithful to the covenant, God was going to bring the covenant stipulations to bear. All those who were convicted of high-handed sins were to be cut off from Israel. So Eli and his sons had to die. And 1 Samuel 3.18 tells us that Eli recognized that as the right thing. Did you see? He said, he is God, let him do what he believes to be right. So Eli didn't even argue. He didn't have a leg to stand on. He did seem to know the law. Now this does not mean that all of Eli's descendants in perpetuity would be held guilty of this sin as though they had committed it themselves. That's not what it means. But it does mean that the consequences of this sin, that Eli's family would be cut off from the altar, would be borne by his house forever. To say it another way, no matter how righteous Eli's later descendants might be, they would never be permitted to return to the service of high priest. Some consequences are permanent. 
Of course, this doesn't mean that they couldn't put faith in God and be gifted eternal life in the world to come. They certainly could. But it does mean that Eli and his sons had forfeited the priesthood forever. Samuel, on the other hand, would walk with the Lord. The text continues in 1 Samuel 3, verses 19 to 21. Now Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and he let none of his words fail. And all Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So Shiloh is the temple. That's where the temple is being kept, the tabernacle at that time. And when it says the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, do you remember when Moses was there, the cloud would come down on the tabernacle saying that God was present? That's what you're being told here. That after God spoke to Samuel, he manifested his presence at Shiloh afterwards. So word of the Lord was no longer rare. Now even though this passage is bad news for Eli and his sons, it is good news for Israel. In deposing Eli, God had freed Israel from a corrupted form of leadership through which the people themselves were being led into rebellion against God. Even more, in the person of Samuel, it was no longer true that word from the Lord was rare. God spoke to and through Samuel throughout his life, and God did not let any of Samuel's words fall to the ground. This juxtaposition of Eli and Samuel reminds us that God's word is a double-edged sword. For those who wish to live in rebellion, as Eli and his sons did, word from God being rare is a blessing. It is a blessing. When God is not speaking, God is showing mercy to his people. During those seasons, the wicked can do whatever they want. God speaking is good news only to those who wish to live in the light and walk in the way that God has taught us. But God speaking is bad news for those who wish to live in rebellion. Why? Because when God begins to speak, the season of mercy is over and judgment is coming. As Jesus explained to Nicodemus in the Gospel of John in chapter 3, this is a famous verse to begin with, but we don't often read the rest of it. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he loved the world in this way, that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. That wasn't God's intention. But he sent them so that the world might be saved through him. The one who believes in him, right? Like Samuel. The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. That the light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light so that his deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds will be revealed as having been performed in God. May we learn from Eli that not all sin is the same. God is exceedingly merciful when it comes to sins that arise from human frailty, from error, from ignorance, from being misled by improper teaching. God overlooks all sins that are not rebellious. He has covered them in the sacrifice of Jesus. This is why God instituted the sacrificial system in Israel and why he fulfilled it in his own flesh. However, not all sins are of that sort. Some sins are rebellious. Some sins are defiant. And God will not overlook such sins. Those who live in these ways, as Hebrews warns us, must either repent or they must face condemnation. Not from people. Who are we? From God. 
In the words of Hebrews, in these cases, no sacrifice for sins is left. In light of this, we must thank God endlessly that even for those of us who have committed rebellious sins, God has made a way for rebels to be restored. In the First Testament, they had to come and make their appeal to God. In the New Testament, we are promised this in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous so that He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise be to God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Though it may be true that you and I sin in word, thought, and deed every day unaware of what we're doing, we have been forgiven by, for all of our non-rebellious offenses once for all in Jesus. Thanks be to God. However, for any who wish to live defiantly, for any who would thrust their fists at the heavens and do what they want without respect to what God has taught us through his prophets and his apostles, forgiveness is offered to such people, but it's on a condition. He's promised to receive us if we admit that what we're doing is sinful, if we confess as much, and if we turn from it, if we repent. May we not make the mistake of Eli and think that God will not be true to his word, that God will overlook rebellions out of an overabundance of mercy. Eli and his sons put all their eggs in the basket that God will never do what he threatened to do. May we not make the same mistake. God will not be mocked. And yet, this is the hope. God wishes the death of no one. If rebels return, they will be forgiven, just as the parable of the wayward son, the prodigal son, tells us. But if they persist in their rebellion, as was true with Eli, God will be true to his word. My prayer is that all God's people will follow the example of Samuel, that they will bend their knee before the Lord and say, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And they will not be like Eli left outside of the speaking of God. May it be so.